0: From the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast, this is U.S. Farm Report.
1: Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. California finally seen reprieve from the relentless rains. This is not completely unprecedented, but it is very rare. Too much of a good thing or signs of an ending drought. That's our Farm Journal report. The case of stolen prized pigs in Denver were caught on the trail to see where the pigs were finally found. A young producer proving to be a cut above the rest.
2: It's gonna go out, you know, hopefully all over the country, come back to our family feedlot, and then go to, you know, sustainable beef, and then go into Walmart's feed supply.
1: The remarkable business and journey of the 2023 top producer Horizon Award winner. And in John's world.
3: Ukraine could be showing us the future of rural internet.
1: Now for the news, California's weather has finally calmed down after weeks of atmospheric rivers slamming the state with damaging rains, wind and surf. Tallying the damage will take time, but a California Office of Emergency Services spokesperson says the number of homes and other structures that will be red tagged as uninhabitable could be in the low thousands. Damage is spread across 41 of California's 58 counties. Flood concerns remain in some areas, and a lot of those areas, big growing areas, with Monterey County growing 61% of the nation's leaf lettuce, along with 57% of the celery and 56% of the head lettuce. And it all could cause problems for the nation's produce supply.
4: Destruction of crops is going to act as a supply, uh, supply side shock. Um, So that means that we're going to have a harder time sourcing these fruits and vegetables domestically.
1: I'll have much more on the situation right now in California and the concern for farmers. They are coming up in our Farm Journal report this weekend. But recent reports show overall price inflation moving down. A better than expected reading of key government index, the U.S. Producer Price Index, or PPI, declined 0.5 percent last month compared to November. That's more than economists expected. And PPI, which measures the prices sellers pay for goods and services before they reach consumers, is often seen as a solid predictor of where inflation is heading. Food prices, those declined 1.2 percent, the biggest monthly dip in two years. Financial experts are putting a dollar figure on just how much more you're paying due to inflation. Moody's Analytics says the typical American spent an extra $371 last month due to inflation compared to a year ago. At the inflation peak last June, Moody's Analytics says the typical family spent an additional $502 per month compared with the year prior. From too much rain to not enough, two years of drought have severely depleted. U.S. hay stocks. Darryl Peel of Oklahoma State University says December 1st hay stocks from USDA show total stocks under 72 million tons. That's more than 16 percent below the previous 10-year average. It's also the lowest December 1st stocks on record, dating back to 1973. He says each of the top 10 states for hay stocks were down. The largest hay stocks were found in Texas, but they are still 25 percent below the 10-year average for the state. Heal says that decreased hay stocks means the cattle industry could face additional liquidation this winter, and leaves cattle particularly vulnerable to severe winter weather over the next couple of months. Well, several farm groups are filing suit regarding the latest Waters of the U.S. rule. Among those, the American Farm Bureau Federation saying in a statement, quote, This isn't what clean water regulations were intended to do. Farmers and ranchers should not have to hire a team of lawyers and consultants to determine how we can farm our land, end quote. This statement goes on to say that the new rule is vague and creates uncertainty for America's farmers. The new rules, largely reviving a definition of WOTUS released during the Reagan era, giving federal protection to large waterways like interstate rivers and streams and wetlands that are adjacent to them. Well, our biggest ag commodity buyer is seeing its population fall for the first time in 60 years. Reports are China's overall population declined to 1.4 billion last year. It aggravates its long-term structural challenges, including the costs of managing an aging population while not producing enough new workers. According to several estimates, China's population may dwindle from 1 billion by 2050 to 494 million by 2100. The issue? China's one-child policy, a practice which ended in 2016. The news comes after China reported 60,000 people, mostly senior citizens, have died from the coronavirus since early December. Chinese and U.S. officials taking part this week in the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Chinese Vice Premier holding a meeting, the two agreeing for a need to enhance communication about macroeconomic and financial issues. The Treasury Department reporting that they had a candid and constructive meeting. China also addressing the forum, telling the world it must abandon its Cold War mentality.
3: We believe that an equitable international economic order must be preserved by all of us.
4: International division of labor,
3: encouragement of competition, anti-monopoly, protection of property rights and IPRs, promoting entrepreneurship and free flow of production factors, fair distribution, ensuring macroeconomic stability and a strong
5: social safety net are still economic principles that are relevant
3: today.
1: The theme of this year's forum is cooperation in a fragmented world. All right, that's it for the news. California getting a break from the atmospheric river. But are the planes now in for more moisture in the coming weeks? We'll get a check of weather next.
0: Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF. BASF, helping you to do the biggest job on Earth. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. H&S heavy-duty manure spreaders feature a two-speed apron drive system and fiberglass-reinforced plywood sides to provide for easy cleaning and minimal freeze-up. Find out more about the H&S spreaders at the H&S website.
1: Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Andrew Whitmire. Andrew, finally a break from those intense rains and storms in California, but those storms also making its way across the plains with snow this week. So is this the start of an active weather pattern there?
6: And tying the answer to your question, it will become a little bit more active here across the uh, central half of the Plain States, as well as the eastern half of the country as we begin uh, this uh, upcoming week and kind of finish out January. Meanwhile, as we take a look at the updated root zone where you see these blues here across much of the west coast here, especially California uh, with extreme uh, wet conditions. This is where we're going to see the moisture kind of beginning to really kind of taper on off. We'll be watching a few systems coming out of the four corners, as well as a few Colorado lows that are trying to develop here. And that'll segue to, again, to some minor drought relief here for parts of uh, Western Kansas, Western Oklahoma, as well as uh, parts of the uh, Midwest and Great Lakes estates here as we head on into this upcoming week. But check out the drought monitor that was released on January 17th. And again, All of the extreme drought now removed from all of uh, California here. We still got a few pockets of the severe drought and pretty much an area wide, still moderate drought. But again, great uh, reduction there into the drought monitor from what we experienced just over the course of the past few weeks and especially throughout the start of the new year. Meanwhile, again, where we really need the moisture is across Western and southwestern Oklahoma and it does look like with a few deep troughs and a few low pressure systems again uh, coming on board here across the four corners and throughout parts of the Colorado Rockies that we're going to try to at least relieve some of this temporarily here as we go throughout the uh, second half here of uh, January and uh, meanwhile much of the eastern coastline here where we really don't need a ton of moisture outside of the far uh, eastern Carolinas it looks like we're going to be inundated uh, with several systems likely here as we go throughout this uh, next week. Here's a look at the precipitation from January 21st to the 27th. Notice how we get above average precipitation along the uh, east coast here. Meanwhile, we go dry out west as we'll be watching an upper level ridge kind of protecting us from moisture off west. Meanwhile, the deep trough developing up across the uh, eastern half of the country will begin to make things a little bit more active here. Now as we round out January going into the end of the month, and in fact even into the first of February here, we'll likely see above average precipitations trying to step up uh, down towards the, the deep south. Kind of a pattern that you would see more typical in the El Nino years uh, trying to develop as we close out the month of January. Maybe for those uh, winter lovers up across uh, northern Michigan, dealing with hopefully a little bit more snowfall. Let's take a look at the precipitation over the next 10 days. Again, not much to talk about out west. Finally starting to dry out. Meanwhile, again, we're going to be inundated with several systems across the deep south, as well as the east coast and New England coastline states. Uh, Let's take a look at precipitation Monday, January 23rd. We're watching the cold front moving through the uh, central plains here. That'll begin to uh, increase the cold air here as we go throughout the mid-portion of this week. And then as we head on into uh, the midweek pattern here, we're going to be watching a few systems that'll bring moisture chances to the Great Lakes, Midwestern states, New England coastlines, as well as the East Coast.
1: Thanks, Andrew. Well, market analysts still digesting all of the numbers and news out of USDA's reports last week. So what was the driver of the markets this week? We are joined by John Payne and Jim McCormick next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Jim McCormick of agmarket.net and John Payne of Hedgepoint Global Markets joining us this weekend. All right, Jim, we've had some time to digest all of this information from the reports that came out last week. A big supply shock, a shock with that loss of 1.6 million acres but at, in corn. But as now we've had time to digest all of that, what is moving the markets this week?
7: Well, right now, I think the market movers is the weather in South America primarily, and then concern about demand. The bean market's been under pressure all week, long time, plain and simple. The weather patterns seem to be changing, not just uh, here. Like, look what's going on in California. They're getting a swap of rain. But in Argentina, the high-pressure front's moving out. That's allowing the first shot of rain, two shots of rain here roughly the next 10 days. And that's, you know, there is damage being done, but the fact is that crop's stabilizing. So stabilized crop in Argentina, plus the big crop in Brazil, the market's feeling a little bit of pressure.
1: Yeah, John, I mean, when you look at Hedgepoint Global Markets, you guys have some analysts and, and, and market consultants down in South America with boots on the ground. What are they seeing? Is this rain in Argentina coming just in time?
8: Yeah, so it's been a nice learning lesson for us, just getting a chance to work with people who are actually working in farms in Argentina and Brazil. You learn a lot from a far away, but to hear those folks talk about it, the season's just so much longer there. And that's one thing I took a while for me to comprehend. You know, they don't plant. If it's dry, they just won't plant it for a while. So they've, they've gotten to a point here where we hit mid-Feb um, where they need, it's go time. It's go or let it go. And uh, it, as Jim mentioned, looking at some better forecasts in the future, I think there's some anticipation here that the crops uh, you know, we've, we've been pretty hyperactive writing down the the crop losses in Argentina um, so now it's maybe maybe to add a little bit back here we'll see on that up in Brazil it's a different story and more of a, of a harvest delay so uh, Mato Grasso which I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of uh, it's a big kind of bean area there uh, they are slow to get it out yields look okay but it's just slow to get it out they don't have the infrastructure that we do drainage things like that so uh, they need the rain to stop and then plant corn. So I think given the lateness in Argentina and then the lateness to harvest in Mato Grasso, we could have a period here. Let's you know call it between March and early June where the U.S. is going to step up a little further in regards to meeting demand, specifically in corn. So I think you'll see those front spreads in corn hold in. And we're seeing that today where May and March are, are actually firm. But the deferreds like July, September, December uh, and the corn contracts are getting sold a little bit.
1: Yeah, Jim, you mentioned demand as well. And in last week's report, we had an analyst describe it as, you know, USDA kind of ripped the Band-Aid off when it came to corn demand, soybean demand, a little bit different story. But what is the biggest concern for you on the demand front, Jim?
7: Right now, the biggest concern is China tying. I mean, there's a lot of trade is anticipating China will eventually come to our market uh, and start buying corn. But the reality is they haven't. They've been buying a lot of corn from Brazil at this point in time. And if for some reason, China does not come into our market and has managed to essentially avoid it, uh, I think the markets could not price that in. And we're going to continue to go down. So it is a very legit concern. The other thing we got to keep an eye on is ethanol demand. They didn't make a lot of adjustments there, but the reality is there's a real fear we're going to go into a recession. That's not going to be good for demand for ethanol. And that is, you know, that'll trickle down to the price of corn as well.
1: Yeah, John, Jim mentioned China, and we just talked about in news, yeah. the population drop in, in China. Is there any correlation there between the population decline that now they're coming out insane and the decline in demand?
8: Yeah, the demand certainly is, is a problem. I don't know demographics in China, and as Jim would know, the reports we get out of there, you got to take them with a grain of salt. So this week to see them finally admit to that, you just wonder if that's baked in the cake or not. I think on the demand side specifically, we'll start with hogs. Uh, this week, we we got a word that China's gonna aggressively cut their sow population. So they're gonna liquidate some of their herd here, make up for some meat supply losses they've had during COVID. And how that affects corn demand is, is a pretty good question. You know, they're they're not gonna be building their herds. Corn, soybean meal demand specifically, I think are probably a little high here. Um, but again, I think that's a story for Brazil right now. You know, China is um, setting the stage to kind of operate much like the North African nations did um, in in the wheat markets, where they were buying from the US forever. We had some regime change, some some macroeconomic changes, and then all of a sudden they're now buying from Russia and they're a big Russian client. I think the same could happen here where a lot of corn demand that the U.S. has been selling to South Korea, Japan, China, that goes down to, down to South America. Um, thankfully, we have a, a lot of industry here and they can use corn, but on the margins, you know, specifically with ethanol, if that, you know, we don't see oil prices really rallying. I think you're gonna have the ability for corn to shed demand at these prices it should be easier.
1: Yeah, well, speaking of that, we did see oil prices uh, edge higher this week, plus some impressive trade in the cattle markets. So later on this show, we're going to digest all of that with Jim McCormick and John Payne. Please stay with us. Well, Ukrainian intelligence officials say they believe Russia is preparing for a second wave of mobilization. And as the war continues, there may be an infrastructure lesson for the rest of the world. Here's John Phipps.
3: Necessity is the mother of invention, it is repeatedly said, and nothing helps clarify what is really necessary, like war. In contrast to the previous century, major conflict between developed countries is only a vague historical concept for most people today. Similar to the world wars and the variously labeled conflicts like Korea and Vietnam, the longer the Ukraine war drags on, the more comparisons we can make between our memories of war and the realities. The battle is upending global economics, trade, and geopolitical alignment. I would venture more national defense strategic plans are being revised with greater urgency than ever before, as non-combatants watch and analyze not computer models, but real-world battlefield outcomes. The smaller adaptations being made by the citizens and militaries involved may have a more lasting effect. For example, the cities of Ukraine are being demolished by a staggering bombardment level. So much so that experts around the world are debating when this year Russia will deplete its arsenal. There are indications it is already rationing artillery rounds and may consider using 40 plus year old ammo. Even with careful storage, which they didn't have, explosives that old won't be popular with gun crews. For Ukrainian civilians, one workaround that has proven its value in this devastation has been Starlink. As Russian barrages destroy cell towers and blow up landlines, bypassing them with an easy-to-use satellite internet connection is not just an option, but a lifeline. Starlink, about which I have probably spoken too much. Can leapfrog shattered communications infrastructure using just the small dish and a little electricity and a computer? The same device that allows our campers to get online can keep villages in rubble on the communication grid reliably. This visible proof could be a serious blow to efforts to bring cable and tower type internet to the remaining sparsely populated regions of the world and especially U.S. farm country. Extending urban infrastructure never made economic sense, and as the Ukrainians are showing us, the future for internet outside metropolitan areas appears to be the rapidly growing armada of low Earth orbit satellites, and soon more Starlink competitors. Maybe instead of billions of dollars for optic cable, which will routinely be sliced by backhoes, our government should hand out Starlink vouchers.
1: Thanks, John, and you can watch more of John's commentary on Farm Journal's YouTube page. When we come back, we check in with the Machinery repeat for Tractor Tales this week.
3: Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're going to head to Kansas to check out a classic Case 930.
9: We didn't buy this one new. I bought this one myself in 1982. I did quite a bit with it. I used to plant with it and hay with it and everything. I really... I mean, it's kind of my go-to tractor, and uh, right now it's got around 6,000 hours, so it's not a terrible amount of hours for what it is. Back in 67, Dad bought a new 930 case. Uh, he traded the 400 for a 700, a 700 for an 830, and then we got up to a 930, and uh, that thing was so handy, and then we bought a, a 970 with a cab on it. Dad said, man, I missed that 930, and... And I was getting started and and I thought, man, I'm gonna, I found this one in there, Joe Hang's had. I thought, man, I'm gonna see if I can buy it. So I did. So I I put a lot of hours on our other 930. Yeah, this has always been a good tractor. Uh, it's, It's always dependable, starts good. Got a block heater, plug it in, starts right up. Yeah, it's easy to see, see what you're doing off the back.
1: Well, as we've been covering in news, California saw three straight weeks of monstrous moisture and storms. And now that a break is in sight, we look at the damage done and the hope ahead for water needs in 2023. That's our Farm Journal Report. Next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, Tradition.
1: We'll talk about the tale of two extremes. After three consecutive years of devastating drought, California has seen relentless rains and steep snowfalls the past three weeks. While a break is now in sight, it will take time to assess the damage done by the historic storms. But it's also planting some hope about the moisture picture in the year ahead. Relentless rains hammered California for three straight weeks from flooding to mudslides. The unforgiving weather is wreaking havoc on agriculture and infrastructure in the state.
4: One of the areas that's been hardest hit has been the Salinas River Valley, which is a northward draining river that starts in southern California, drains northward through some very fertile land in central California and then
1: exits the northwestern coast of California. So what's the cause? USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says storm after storm is being fueled by what is called an atmospheric river.
4: It's it's nothing new. It's something that's been going on since the beginning of time. It's a very concentrated area of moisture originating in the tropical Pacific and then pointed like a fire hose at the west coast of the United States.
1: Rippey says it causes a series of several individual storms, and as California saw, the atmospheric river hammers an area with intense moisture over and over again.
4: That is one of the strangest things about this wet spell, is that it's coming during the third year of La Nina, which is still going. We still have the cool water in the equatorial Pacific, and all signs continue to point toward La Nina still active in the Pacific Ocean, a rare occurrence for an area facing three straight years of drought. This is not completely unprecedented, but it is very rare. I will say that the last time this happened was back in 2016-17 when we had a weak La Nina that year.
1: Kirk Hens of Bmwx agrees it's rare, but says signs point to a weakening La Nina.
8: Think about it as jet streams. La Nina generally means a weaker jet stream. El Nino is a stronger jet stream. Well, you get an atmospheric river event from a stronger Pacific jet stream, which is El Nino-like related. So that tells me that you know, no matter what happens in the ocean, the atmosphere is starting to trend
5: something away from La Nina.
1: While longer-term outlooks may be improving, producers today are wading through what the damaging storms left behind.
5: It continues to be really a an evolving situation where, you know, not only industry, but um, the emergency response officials and system here within the region are really uh, still assessing an ongoing nature. You know, what, what are those impacts? But one of the hardest hit areas, the Salinas Valley. And this is a primary region for the production of leafy vegetables and fresh berries, namely strawberries for the U.S. consumer over that spring, fall, summer, uh, spring, summer, fall period of time.
1: It's not clear how long the flooding will last, but the good news is the area is in between
5: growing seasons right now. Those crops largely aren't impacted because they're not quite yet into production. However, there are situations here where some of those crops, namely on the leafy vegetable side, were planted.
1: Timing is key but the flood water is still sprouting doubts on when the crops will get planted this year.
5: I believe there's confidence that as waters recede most of the acres that were impacted should get planted this year they will be delayed. The
1: other concern water contamination.
5: So water
4: tests will have to be done soil testing just to make sure it's safe to grow these crops.
1: Even with the deluge of rain, Rippey says lingering drought is still impacting the state. But with all the rain and snow,
8: it's also planting hope. I think we saw 40 to 50 foot recovery in in like two weeks in some of these basins. I mean, that is... That is what was needed in a lot of those areas.
1: The latest snowpack assessment shows levels in the Sierra Nevadas reached 250% of normal. And far northern California is seeing snowpack 200% of normal. Certainly
4: from a water allocation standpoint, we should be in much better shape in 2023 than any of the three preceding years.
1: Is it the start of a changing scenario for the drought stricken West? Well, Rippey says today La Nina has not lifted its grip with the rare January tornado touching down in Iowa this week as proof.
4: I think that we can blame on La Nina without a doubt. We have a very active storm track. It has shifted now away from the West, but now we're seeing these storms starting to light up across the middle part of the country, central and eastern U.S., snow in nebraska currently
1: snow this week also bringing some drought relief to the north central great plains good news for winter wheat and soil moisture overall but also a warning that more severe weather outbreaks could be on tap yet this month
4: active storm track has shifted but we remain in a pretty hyperactive weather pattern as we head through the rest of january just a different part of the country than what we saw for the first half
1: Well, the promising start to moisture is also happening in the plains, but will it be enough to rebuild the dwindling cattle herd in the U.S.? Jim McCormick and John Payne rejoin us next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator Closing Wheels provide quicker emergence and are more consistent in dry conditions than any other closing wheels. Order 12 to 16 rows today and qualify for free shipping or 20% off an end zone moisture management package.
1: Welcome back, Jim McCormick and John Payne joining us again. Jim, we saw the oil markets edge higher this week. As you look at ethanol demand, as you look at some of these other impacts on the market, you know what are you watching? Which commodity do you think that it could really show its head in?
7: Well, I think the one you got to watch the most for the commodities time is the oil market. It is working higher. A couple things driving it higher. Goldman Sachs said they're relatively positive of commodities as an investment in 2023, and I think that brought some money to our markets. But the other thing is just the reopening of China. After being locked down for several years for COVID, they've unlocked and that's got people very optimistic of the demand for China for commodities. The one thing I want to point out, Tyne, though, if you look at it historically, our economy kind of lags China movement by about four quarters or roughly a year. So as China starts reopening, I think you've seen a lot of people get excited about it. But history says We're not really going to get that punch in demand and optimism for maybe up until this time a year from now. So uh, something we need to watch. But oil is the canary in the coal mine for pretty much all the commodities.
1: Well, John, cattle markets, we saw some impressive trade this week, some historic trade, as I know you're going to to, to point out. But when you look at some of the positive movements, it seems like with inflation and some of those reports, do you think that just further fuels this cattle market?
8: I think it fuels the beef prices. know and and we the way i kind of look at cattle demand it's like a tube of toothpaste all right and so the 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 packer side they tend to get it first uh we've gotten a lot of that that demand as we we talked about post-covid where you know margins for 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 packing houses were like double what they had been essentially record levels that has now gone away packing margins have leveled out and now it's in the feed sector the crush sector so if you're buying feeder cattle or buying feeder pigs even feeding them six-dollar corn with uh, you know four hundred fifty-dollar meal, profit margins are pretty good. Uh, and then I think the the down the road chain here will be the feeder side, where uh, you know the cow calf producers really are not even at these prices incentivized to go out and really increase production, hold back heifers. So at this point, I would be um, I'd be a little skeptical to be selling any breaks here, specifically in the uh, in the feeder markets. Uh, the markets, the one difference is. We're trading 170 on the uh, uh, April fats. The last time we traded that was 2014, December of 2014. And the market was at a steep inversion when that happened. Now we're at a carry, meaning the markets are somewhat normal with these prices. We have supply in line. So I think you catch a supply chain problem somewhere. I think that's where feeder cattle can really go up and uh, you know put a dent in those in the feed lots. So I'd be uh, be careful here to get too short on the feeder side.
1: Jim, it may, be, it may have been too much of a good thing for moisture as far as California. You know, we just assessed that damage. But as we look at the plains, we are seeing some storms pop up, some of that those winter storms, some snow that hopefully will replenish some of that moisture. But is it enough that we will see that drastically change our herd size here as we're hearing that more producers may even be thinking about more liquidation?
7: Well, exactly. I think that's big the problem right now. I, I think the biggest concern we've got for the demand for the beef market tying is everyone's bullish on the supply side of the situation. You look again, we've been in a herd liquidation for four years now. My biggest concern is the demand. The reality is we're probably gonna go into a recession. You know, credit card debt is racking up for the consumers. Interest rates for credit cards are now at all all time highs. And I think you just gotta be a little bit leery that the demand may not be as optimistic as people think. And it's not just here in the United States, Dine. It is pretty much around the world. You know, the bank, central banks around the world are all raising interest rates. It is slowing the economies around the world. And like I said, everyone's betting on China to bail us out. And I just don't think China's going to be able to do it as quick as the markets think. And so uh, our argument is whenever you have an opportunity to lay off some risk, don't be afraid to do it.
1: Well, I know it's a little too early to get into this acreage debate, John. But as you look at the, you know, the, the crop production reports and the impact that it had on cotton prices, do you think we are going to see a disappearance of cotton acres coming up in 2023? And where do you think those acres will move to?
8: I think they'll go to Milo and corn in, in the Southern Plains. And I think we'll, uh, in, in you know the Delta regions certainly go chase soybeans. Um, the long run story here, I think when it comes to what the farmer is going to do is credit you know, borrowing money is going to be a different, it's going to be a story this year. You know, we haven't had to talk about that for quite quite a while when it comes to actually putting in, um, you know, the putting the crop in the ground, which one's cheaper. Um, you know, you have near-term interest rates at, at very, very high levels. So it's going to squeeze a lot of the profitability for labor inputs uh, and then hopefully that output price would stay strong so that folks can recoup that. Yeah,
1: definitely. John, thank you. Jim, thank you for joining us this weekend. We do need to take a quick break and then we will introduce you to a Horizon Award winner that will be recognized next week during Top Producers event. Stay with us. Well, we're gearing up for our annual Top Producer event in Nashville next week. Not only are there a host of speakers and sessions to help you fine-tune your business skills, it's also a chance to recognize top producers in agriculture. And this weekend, we introduce you to a young producer who's blazed his own path, creating quite the beef business at a young age. And as you'll see, Top Producers 2023 Horizon Award winner is truly a cut above the rest.
10: Trey Wasserberger always wanted to be a cowboy, but there was no opportunity in his family. Instead, his journey into the purebred business started in October of 2016.
2: Greg Wilkie put us together and said, I want you to meet Bill Rischel. He's, he's a legend within the Angus breed.
10: The two met at the ranch near North Platte, Nebraska. Rischel quickly saw the passion Trey had for the cattle business and within a matter of weeks made him his protege. Trey never owned registered stock prior to that, but he and wife Dana jumped in with both feet.
2: And then January 1, I owned a seed stock uh, business and never even worked on one. In March I had my first bull sale. Now this will be our fifth bull sale of our own and uh, we've been growing it from 112 bulls that first year to about 400 this year.
10: Those bulls are sold in 30 plus states and to show accountability, commercial customers can sell or consign their feeder cattle into the first of its kind TD feed test.
2: We do it about a $25,000 award, five categories for uh, you know those customers in the TD feed test, and prime percentage and CAB percentage, uh, highest yield, which is a lot of value there. Residual daily gain, average daily gain, ADG, so it's about 5,000 to each category.
10: TD Angus also owns 1,200 registered cows, and to accelerate genetic improvements, they put three to 400 embryos a year in their own and customers' herds. They also conduct DNA and genomic testing on all the offspring.
2: I want to DNA that calf at birth and and have him registered with his DNA because if I like what happened genetically, I might do it again.
10: T.D. Angus specializes in cattle procurement and heifer development and runs 4,500 yearlings on grass and develops 400 to 600 commercial bred heifers a year.
2: We'll go back out there and, and try to buy those calves back, those steer calves specifically, and also do a heifer development program for the heifer calves so we have an avenue for both sets of calves. And then uh, usually try to get them back here to our family feedlot.
10: And that commercial feed yard features their own genetics and their own feed.
2: Kirk Olson, Dana's uh, dad, feeds about 50,000. And, uh, you know, our feed test gets about four or 5,000 every year. So uh, that's a big part of our business as well.
10: But Wasserburgers didn't stop there. The pandemic showed them how fragile the food supply and the cattle market was. And from that, sustainable beef was born.
2: We got... First time ever, we actually have under one roof and under one team at Sustainable Beef, we have we have a seed stock producer that's going to provide a high marbling, high tenderness uh, uh, product to to sire these calves. That's going to go out, you know, hopefully all over the country, come back to our family feedlot, and then go to you know Sustainable Beef, and then go into Walmart's feed supply.
10: This is a -a one-of-a-kind supply chain partnership with Walmart, and it stemmed from shared sustainability goals.
2: What's really cool is, is our carbon footprint. Is limited um, all without 15 miles of each other these bulls our feedlot and our packing plant in the Walmart distribution center are all within 15 miles of each other and that's huge and we're proud of that.
10: The nearly 400 million dollar plant is currently under construction and will be ready for business in 2024. Wasserberger says it's the last step in their conception to consumer model and it's just one of the reasons this visionary leader is tomorrow's top producer Horizon Award winner.
1: Now, Trey, along with this year's Trailblazer Award winner, as well as the three Top Producer of the Year finalists, will all be recognized next week during our Top Producer Summit. We'll also host a live taping of U.S. Farm Report on Wednesday next week, and there's still time to register. You just use that QR code on your screen, and it'll take you right there. Well, the suspicious rise in foodborne illnesses, customer support is next.
3: Is our food as safe as it used to be?
1: Well are the number of foodborne illness cases growing or is it just more advertised today? John Phipps looks into the answer during customer support this week.
3: Greg Lane has a question about food safety. What happened to the good old days? I was a kid growing up on a dairy farm where we also raised hogs, beef and chicken. Usually in August we butchered our chickens between 20 and 30. Same way in winter with four or five hogs. As for sanitizing, it goes, it was just a quick rinse with clean water. Food poisoning was almost unheard of. Have bacteria and germs developed that weren't around when we were young? Up until the last, uh, last 10 or 15 years, I personally had never heard of listeria and had heard of the salmonella just a handful of times, yet now we hear about it almost daily. Greg, thanks for writing. I think there are multiple factors for your perceptions of food safety. I'll run through some here. First, our bodies have pretty good defense against foodborne pathogens. However, there are new strains evolving constantly. Meanwhile, many of the most lethal food pathogens have been virtually eliminated. Cholera and typhoid fever and tuberculosis, for example. Second, basic food hygiene and proper preparation in the kitchen may be the largest weak point for foodborne illness. But we don't keep good statistics on where contamination happens unless large numbers of people are affected. Also, most food poisoning means three or so really unpleasant days, and only rarely uh, it causes death unless it's untreated. Third, as more of our food is prepared by others in very large quantities, accidental contamination can sicken many more people at once than the pig we slaughtered and ate at home. Today, we eat roughly 50% of our food away from home. Fourth, and probably most important, while the incidence of food poisoning is very low, We now know about 10 people getting sick in a restaurant in California, whereas before we only knew about local problems. Our food, by any measure, is much safer than when we were young, but that's not newsworthy. Finally, media attention heightens consumer anxiety, disproportionate to the actual risk. Fear and anger will sell papers or generate clicks, regardless of the actual odds. It also encourages blame and litigation, since food companies are tempting large targets. I also keep in mind that 2023 is my grandchildren's good old days in the making. Maybe the days were better back then, but I suspect we just remember ourselves as better back then.
1: Thank you, John. Well, there was a case of some stolen prize pigs this week in Denver. So who was behind the theft and where did they finally find the pigs? We're hot on the trail next. All right, so what would you do if you went to bed preparing to show pigs the next morning, but when you woke up, your trailer and pigs were gone? That was the case in Denver, Colorado last weekend, and it may come with a warning to other show pig or animal owners out there. Well, Miles Lee of Quincy, Washington in town with his family to take part in the National Western Stock Show. They had just driven 24 hours from Washington to show their pigs there. They woke up only to discover that their pigs, along with the trailer and truck, had been stolen from the hotel parking lot. The Denver police say they found the pigs and equipment 48 hours after it was reported. And guess where they found them? Only about 10 minutes from where they were stolen. The police told the family that their pickup, an older Ford model, is a hot commodity because of the engine. The family reports the pigs are doing okay, despite not having food or water For 52 hours, show organizers even letting the Lees show their pigs this week. A crazy case, but a reminder to all show and animal owners. You can read the full story on porkbusiness.com. All right, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Remember, we're on the road next week. We will bring you our U.S. Farm Report roundtables from the top producer summit. That is in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, we will work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.